0: listen as I read, Job is uh, now responding to the second round of his friend's criticisms and is responding to what was immediately before chapter 18 is a very shrill and bitter condemnation of Job by Bildad, who, uh, if you want to put it crudely, basically says, Job, you're so wicked, God must send you to hell. That's, in a few words, that's Bildad's message in chapter 18. What a friend he was. And uh, Job is answering that, but also speaking to God. He slips in and out of speaking to his friends and to God, especially in the latter part. I'm going to skip a piece in the middle, but I'll tell you what I'm reading. As I begin 19. Job 19 at verse 1, Job answered and said, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you have cast reproach upon me, are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. Behold, I cry out, violence, but I'm not answered. I call for help, but there's no justice. He, that's God, has walled up my way so that I cannot pass. He has set darkness upon my paths. He has stripped from me my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side, and I am gone. And my hope has he pulled up like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. His troops come on together. They have cast up their siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. Now, for summary's sake, let me go to to verse 19. All my intimate friends abhor me. And those whom I loved have turned against me. My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me, have mercy on me, O you my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh?' And then quite a turning happens as he says, "'Oh, that my words were written. "'Oh, that they were inscribed in a book with an iron pen, "'and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. "'For I know that my Redeemer lives, "'and at the last he will stand upon the earth, "'and after my skin has been thus destroyed.'" Yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. And this is the Word of God. Many years ago, a man named Glenn Chambers was a young American who sensed the call from God to work in missions. So he went into training and got a seminary education, got himself aligned with the missions board, raised his support, and finally, after years of preparation, he was ready to board a flight to South America where he would become, he hoped, a missionary to Ecuador. He was excited, of course, he was nervous. He was in the Miami airport waiting to depart with his flight, and he had a little time, and his folks were in the Midwest, and he thought, maybe I'll get a last word to the folks before I board the plane. No cell phones in his day. He had an envelope with a stamp on it, and he realized he had no paper or anything to write on. So he was looking at a magazine, and he found a mostly blank Page of the magazine with a little advertising on the top and tore that page out and wrote a note to his folks, a farewell a last farewell to them and put it in the envelope and mailed it there in the airport The next morning February 15th, 1947 without any explanation, Glenn Chambers airplane flew into the side of a mountain near Quito, Ecuador He, the brand new missionary to be along with every soul on board, died instantly. The day after Glenn's folks were notified by the airline of his death, the hasty note that he had mailed from the Miami airport arrived in their mailbox. They pulled out this sheet torn from a magazine and read what he had written. Dear Mom and Dad, I'm on the way. Who knows what a great adventure God has prepared for me. Love, Glenn. At the top of their son's improvised notepaper was a big, bold word from an advertisement in the magazine. One word. Why? Why? Why would God take the life of someone consecrated to serve him before he could even reach the field? We ask God why a lot, don't we? In our various life circumstances, why did my wife die? Why did my husband die? Why did I get this cancer that's so debilitating to my whole life? Why did I think God was leading me into this particular job that now after three years I find is a horror and it turns out to be so wrong for me? Why is my adult child so rebellious. Why can't I earn enough money to close the gap and live in a measure of comfort? Why can't we have better leaders to vote for? Why? Why, why, why? And aren't we usually saying, God, I don't think you're governing things exactly right. I acknowledge you as Lord of the universe, but why are you doing it the way you're doing it? It just doesn't seem to be right. And we've been going along with Job, watching what happened to him, a man who at the beginning of the book said he was blameless and upright in his generation, more godly than anybody else around, no specific sin for which he was being punished, and yet just about everything he had was stripped away from him, all his children, all of his income, all of his holdings, his wife's affection, and she herself was... Somewhat estranged, and thought that Job should be angry and curse God, and he didn't, and maybe you 've been following along. I appreciate the words of support many of you said that you say to me well i 'm so glad we 're studying job. I really enjoy job i 'm not sure why you enjoy job it 's not an enjoyable book, but I know what you're saying, and I know that some of you are thinking, "Good, this is going to unwrap for me and give me the key." To the great mystery. Why do people suffer? Sooner or later, the pastor is going to come to the chapter that contains the key, and I'll understand why suffering. Well, I'll tell you, that chapter's not coming. It's not anywhere in this book. In fact, God never actually explains or unravels for Job the answer why in the terms that a human being would want. it. But he certainly does teach us how to follow him and trust him and worship him in spite of not knowing why. In fact, trusting in the power and goodness of God without the explanation is really the key of Job. So don't be in too much suspense to await that explanation, but listen and look for how God taught Job to trust him without it in the midst of his pain. I believe Job 19 is the closest thing we have in this book to a true turning point or resolution. You know, if you read a novel or a mystery, you, you look for the place in the plot where things take a turn and hopefully if it has a happy ending, something's going to turn or, or you want to find out who, who if it's a whodunit mystery, you want to find that out. In a manner of speaking, I think Job 19 is the pivotal point of meaning in the book. Maybe not all would agree with me on that. But it certainly brings forth one of the finest statements of splendid faith in all of the Old Testament, if not in the entire Bible. And while we're going to see in chapters to come many more rambling dialogues with his comfortless comforters, who thought they were delivering the truth as they kept lambasting Job with that what he must be doing wrong the plot of job essentially is resolved here in chapter 19 because here on one hand job very frankly concludes and states in great specific terms that god regards him as an enemy for reasons he knows not and cannot comprehend and yet in what seems like a paradox He turns on a dime at verse 23 and then 25 and declares shining trust in God's great redemption that is coming in a future day beyond this lifetime. And I would see that perhaps the question hanging over the book of Job can be restated in this simple terms, is God for me or against me? And if that's the great question hanging over Job, the answer seems to be, right now it appears that God is against me. But I know there is no question in the end that he is for me. Job's answer concludes here, although to all appearances it seems that God is against me, I know that in the end of time he will stand for me as my living Redeemer. As a first point, I want to give you verses 5 through 12 here, particularly as Job summarizes that this point God is treating me like his enemy. Look at the things he says. He's very specific. This is a man of faith, remember, but he's saying, God has put me in the wrong. He has closed his net over me. He has walled up my way so I cannot pass. He has stripped me of my glory. He has kindled wrath against me. His troops have cast up siege ramps against my tent. I chuckled with one commentator who pointed out the mixed imagery of that verse 12. You know, you know what a siege ramp is in ancient warfare when they came and built up the earth, you know, to make a ramp so they could reach the top of a castle wall or something. A siege ramp is what you need to take a great fortress. Job saying, God's building siege ramps against my tent. You don't usually need siege ramps to take off, to conquer a tent. It's almost humorous what Job is saying there. But notice he's not cursing God here. He's simply reciting facts as they seem to be true to him. Now, I didn't treat chapter 16 of Job. You might want to just flip back there for a second and see some more of this same kind of language. I hadn't gone over this previously. Because there are many examples we could say of how he tells the apparent circumstances. Chapter 16, starting in verse uh, 6 or so, or 7, we read, Now God has worn me out. He has torn me in his wrath. He has hated me. He has cast me into the hands of the wicked. He seized me by the neck and dashed me to pieces." He sets me up as his target and his archers surround me. What I need to emphasize to you is these are not statements of an atheist or an agnostic. These are statements about God from a man of faith who's telling you, as honestly as he knows how, it looks like God's against me everywhere I turn. And he's doing just about every negative thing you could imagine to bring me down, to smash me, to stop me, to hinder me. And Job feels forced to draw these conclusions because he was a man of faith and he knew that God was accountable for all things that happen. He believed in providence. He believed that accidents didn't take place in God's universe. He believed that there were no slip-ups with God, that when things happened that God had at least allowed or permitted them to happen. And so he could say, God has done this. And that was a statement of faith, even though what he was talking about was very, very negative because he believed God was the master of the universe and the engineer of all things ultimately. Now, you do need to remember, and we have to keep pointing this out every once in a while, that neither Job nor his critics, his three friends— knew what we know. know, This is a unique book because you know something that the main character never actually is told, and that is what went on in chapters 1 and 2. The whole idea that it was a satanic design to ruin Job and bring all this suffering. It was a great test from the evil one, which God indeed allowed, but did not author and did not it wasn't God's idea. And in fact, God actually praised Job as the model of faith. Just think if Job had known that. If he had to experience all this and he knew, well, God let this happen because he thought I was a model man of faith. Wouldn't have that? I'm not saying that would have made everything great to experience it, but it certainly would have given him a different sense of assurance about what God was up to. But he was unable to see that. And he thought God was treating him as an enemy. A Puritan author named Thomas Brooks commented this words, quote him, Providence may chide us bitterly and strike us heavily, even where God loves us dearly. He said the hand of God appeared to be against Job while his heart was very much set upon him. So it's not a miscarriage of divine justice that we're treating here. It's simply the fact of a delay in seeing the final outcome of the case and learning how God really feels about things, and he will learn that before we're finished. But right now, as far as he can tell, God is his enemy, and he speaks that frankly as a man of faith. Well, you know, that would make you think, well, Job's a failure as far as faith goes, but no. You have to reckon with the second point of this text that is the great thing that makes Job 19 such an amazing uh, text to consider. Because the first thing he said is all based on the appearances of present circumstance, which was all negative. So how could he help but say, God's against me, God has put me in his net, he's built his siege ramps, he's shot his arrows into me, and all of that. That's the appearance But now he's about to say, after taking this idea that God is treating me like an enemy, something else, something quite different. Not how things appear, but something that he knows with a certainty. And he hasn't seen it yet, but he knows that it's coming. And that knowledge is Job saying, I know at the end of time. God will take his stand for me as my living redeemer. You might think about verses 23 and 24 as kind of like a drum roll and a trumpet blast. It doesn't look like that, I admit, in the text. It doesn't even seem to have any kind of a, a break uh, because 22 is a fairly negative statement. Why do you, God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? It's like you want... You want to hurt me even more. But then in 23, oh, that my words were written down. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. No, that isn't good enough. Oh, that an iron pen, a hammer, and chisel would engrave them on a rock. In other words, I'm about to say something that's so important that I want it to be there for posterity so my great, 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 great grandchildren will be able to read this statement. It's so important. What in the world is he about to say? Well, now he states, look at the beginning of verse 25, what I know, not what appears, not what's going on just right now in front of my eyes, what I know must be true. That is that my Redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, I shall see him myself, my eyes will behold and not another. Oh, how my heart faints within me. How can we account for a weak, miserable, suffering short-sighted man like Job predicting something like this unless he's speaking as the mouthpiece of the Spirit of God. Job's confidence, the statement of what he knows, is that the person of a living Redeemer will appear for him and vindicate him. All the commentators point out the importance of the word Redeemer in its Old Testament form that see, It's an interesting little word, goel, a word that had a place in the cultural practice of the Old Testament. You could think of Boaz in the book of Ruth as a goel, a kinsman redeemer. This was an enactment of God's law and the custom of Israel that if someone died, let's say I was to die and, and I had a brother, my brother would come in and take care of my debts if he possibly could or protect my widow or be the guardian over my children. Protect my reputation if there was some blot against me or some injustice or, or case in court that had to be tried to clear my name. My goel, my closest male relative, would be the one, my kinsman, who would redeem my name and protect my family. That's what Joab is talking about here when he says, I know that my Redeemer lives and will act for me. Now, someone who lives this way, he's, he's talking about what will happen way beyond his own life, and it, it has really a futuristic sound to it. He's talking about something more than just ordinary human life. He seems to be talking about life itself, the life that, of which God is the giver and, and creator. And who in the world could be sure of surviving him? And, and, you know, he's speaking in last day terms here. At the last, he will stand upon the earth. He might as well say at the end of time, it sounds like, this will happen. I'm already dead. My skin has been destroyed. And yet, in my flesh, I will see this. I myself. This sounds strange to us. He sounds like he's talking about a great revealed truth that God has given him. And Job, it's not going to happen tomorrow necessarily. You're going to have to die first. But on the earth, on this planet, your Redeemer bearing a lasting life is going to appear as your Goel, your kinsman, who will vindicate you after your own skin has been destroyed. But you'll be in a new body according to this. You'll have new eyes to behold it. You will see God, not in this disease racked pain-wracked body that you have right now. Job has described a few moments earlier there in verse 20 and other verses how bad off his physical health is. He, in fact, he got real specific about it. At verse 17, my breath is strange to my wife. I'm a stench to my children. His his whole body was in such a diseased state and so emaciated that he's saying, I'm disgusting. My family don't even want to be around me. I'm done for as far as my physical being is concerned. And yet, when this thing happens that my Redeemer vindicates me, I'll be there. I'll have eyes to see it. In my flesh, I shall see God. Folks, do you understand, I've reminded you a few times in recent weeks how murky the general idea of the Old Testament is about life after death. It's nothing about a heaven with golden streets and all of that. That doesn't exist in the Old Testament. The best statements of faith in most places in the Old Testament by some of the best spokesmen are, well, God will gather me to himself after death. As if I don't know really what that will be like, but God will take care of it or I'll be with my forefathers, or something like that. That's about as clear a view as they had, very muddy about what happened in Sheol after death. Look at this, though. Here is one of the clearest statements between Genesis and Malachi that pictures an identical copy of the New Testament event of the resurrection of Christians at the return of Christ. As told by 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4 and many other passages we are familiar with, Here's, these words jump off the page. You, you look at this and you say, where'd this come from? This is amazing that he could say this. He's going to be vindicated and restored and he's going to see God. Remember, Job is a great worshiper of God. That's the first thing we were told about him in chapter 1. He gave sacrifices to God every day. He prayed to God on behalf of his family. He was always worried that his adult children might be going astray and not not repenting, and he repented for them, if that's possible. His great desire was to worship God. Now, in a time when he cannot see God, cannot understand what God is doing, cannot glimpse the reasons for things God is allowing He's saying here what David essentially said in Psalm 17. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness, and I will be satisfied with seeing you. No wonder, he said, my heart faints at the idea. I can't even imagine how great this will be. Wow, I'm going to see God. And I'm not just guessing at this. I know that my Redeemer lives and will do this. Let me give you a couple points of application of this, if I may. Number one, this particular passage, especially verses 25 to 27 here, exemplify the marvelous unity of God's holy word from beginning to end. Here we are in the depths of olden times in the Old Testament, And something is said that if it had appeared in any chapter of, let's say, one of Paul's epistles in the New Testament, we would have thought it fits right in. You know, there are a lot of destructive critics of the Bible. A lot of them write absolute nonsense. It almost seems like the more prestigious the secular university they have their PhD from, the more silly some of their comments are on the Bible. But I'm not aware of any critic of the Bible who's ever come to this passage in Job and who has... Contended from the science of textual criticism that these particular verses were put here in the New Testament age after we knew about Jesus Christ. Nobody says that. Nobody. And in fact, the oldest manuscripts we have of Job, and we have some very, very old ones, all have this in there hundreds and hundreds of years. The, d- the manuscripts can be dated as hundreds of years before the time of Christ. So here we have this wonderful, clear prediction of something that exactly coincides with and fits what Christ, our kinsman-redeemer, will do for his people of faith, and it's been there from the beginning. And I'm suggesting this is one more great witness of the unity and the power and authority of the Word of God. We read Psalm 22, and we say, wow, look at how it describes the cross, soldiers gambling for his clothes and him drinking sour wine and all this, written in a psalm way before the cross. Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, describing exactly what would happen to Jesus. Hundreds of years. 1 Peter one ten has a wonderful saying there. It says that prophets of old searched and inquired carefully as to what person or time the Holy Spirit in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and his subsequent glories. In other words, Peter was saying in the New Testament day that prophets like Job in the Old Testament day didn't always completely understand what they were saying, what all the implications were, or exactly how and when God would work out as Job wrote about this Redeemer. Did he know the name of Jesus Christ? I think not. But he was speaking by the power of God of something that only could be predicted of of Christ and fulfilled in Christ. And so we see the authorship of God here in all of his word, Old Testament and new, Old Testament predicting, new fulfilling. A huge evidence of the truthfulness and power of the word of God is fulfilled prophecy. But secondly, and perhaps the main thing to see today today, is that when we observe Job being confused by the harsh things happening to him and when he concluded that God was his enemy, I believe we are being told and instructed by example that we may likewise expect ourselves to be similarly perplexed. And we may very well be in situations in life, some of you right now perhaps, or to come in the future, When you are looking at what's happening and you keep saying to yourself, why is God doing this? Why is God allowing this? I can't see any possible reason. I don't know what I could have done that this is being visited on me as a punishment. God, what are you doing? I can't figure it out. I've been there. And many of you have been or maybe are right now. You can expect to be perplexed and asking why. Is God letting this happen? He must be my enemy if he lets this happen. Well, I want to quote to you from the great baseball theologian, Yogi Berra. (laughs) Yogi Berra in the 20th century. He wasn't very grammatical, but he said it very well. It ain't over until it's over. You and I cannot conclude the result of our lives from present momentary experiences, or even the cumulative effect perhaps of many years of such experiences. And you're saying, well, it's been like this for me for 10 years. God seems like my enemy. He must be. The profound thing I have to say to you is, it ain't over till it's over. God's final verdict is not spoken about you yet. His final result, if you are a child of his in Jesus Christ, will be worked out and revealed when you are vindicated in the resurrection of your body, appearing with Christ your Savior at the end of time. Your kinsman redeemer, Jesus, will speak for you beyond the grave, and he will have one word to say about you if you belong to him. I'm not speaking this to everyone generally because it's not true of everyone generally, but of those who are in Christ, his one-word verdict will be righteous, justified, mine, and no one will contradict that. No one can, and that is the verdict that matters, folks not the verdict of simple circumstances that might be happening to you right now, but will pass away at some time. I was rereading a bi- biography. I love good biographies, and there aren't a lot of them around. I was rereading a biography of the famous early American preacher and theologian, Jonathan Edwards. He's more of a theologian than Yogi Berra, I'll assure you of that. Uh, in 1758, Edwards died very suddenly. He took a smallpox vaccination, which he believed was a good thing for him to do, and it killed him. Just as he was coming into the place of his life at age 54, that which would be the pinnacle of his influence as the evangelical leader in the New England and Mid-Atlantic colonies, that where he could consolidate and lead forward on the momentum of the Great Awakening, and bring the gospel to bear on many things in a confusing and difficult time. He was the acknowledged leader by many people, not just in one little place, but really across many states in those early days of our country. And here, Edwards, the eminent spokesman and leader and theologian, dies out of the blue. Not only that, but within six months, his wife died out of the blue. She was younger than him. You could die easily in those days. No penicillin, you know, diphtheria, boom, you were gone. Not only that, but their daughter, Esther, died within that six month period. Wham, wham, wham. One of the leading families of the colonial American evangelical movement. Three deaths. And people reacted to that and said, What is God doing? And one young woman who was a friend of the daughter, Esther, her name was Sarah Prince, wrote a letter to someone else about her grief over the Edwards and and this whole uh, tragedy. Here's what she said. My whole dependence for comfort in this world seems to be gone. In the losses of the Edwards, my God seems to hide his face. I cannot see his love in these providences at all. God seems to have shot us full of his arrows All at once, she said. But then further along in the letter, this same young woman who appears to be a mature Christian thought more carefully and she began to write in a somewhat different way. And she said, Oh, that I could be ready for that great heavenly summons as they were. I want to lay myself low at the foot of God and resign my soul entirely to him. I choose to live loose." From this world, and only unto Him, my Redeemer. For I see that acquaintance with Him is the all in all. So, Lord, grant me mercies to follow in their paths. She was bewildered by what God was doing, but she resigned herself to His grace and His future mercies. We can expect to struggle and moan with hardships that go on, whatever they may be in our lives. We, we, none of us will have everything Job had, but we'll have things that will confound us and hurt us and turn us inside out. And we'll say, where's God? Is he my enemy? I hope we can take heart from the extremity of Job, who was honest about what it felt like to have these things come against him, but he never cursed God. And he found that a perplexed believer can also persevere in ultimate trust in God's providence. Job expressed his belief that this world is not the only world there is. Our life on earth is a preparation for a larger, richer, more important, and endless life beyond this one. And although to all appearances it may seem God is against you today, you who affirm trust in Jesus Christ, you and no others, can know that at the end of time he will have his Redeemer stand as defense attorney to vindicate you and render the verdict for you for he is the one who was all perfect righteousness who died in your place. I pray that you can put your trust in him the way Job did. Our Father, you haven't answered why yet, and we begin to realize this book is not going to do that. Instead of telling us why, you've told us who. You've told us that we can trust in the one who will undo it all. Every perplexing question every hurting situation, everything that makes us draw a wrong conclusion about you right now. And so help us to put our weak trust in Jesus Christ, the righteous one, our living redeemer, and so to stand in him. Amen.